0: So we're talking about Acts chapter 10, and we're talking about Cornelius and Peter, and just really how groundbreaking of a moment that was for the early church, especially in the first century. Um, but before we think about that, the reason I entitled the, the message this morning, Spiritual Disruption and in Innovation, is because like, I kind of want to see it through this lens of disruption and innovation, I think most of us would agree that we've benefited from a lot of the innovations of the last 50 years, right? Whether it's something as simple as cars getting better or something as groundbreaking as the personal computer or the internet, in the long run, a lot of our lives have have improved in a lot of ways because of those innovations. However, Just because they're innovations doesn't mean there aren't some growing pains. There aren't disruptions that go along with each of those, right? Especially at the beginning of all of those things. Um, It's always rough those first few weeks, months, years, or even decades of anything new, whether it's a new methodology in a field of study, whether it's a new practice, or even a new technology of some sorts. And the thing that um, I always like to reflect on, especially when it comes to the internet, um, is the fact that the internet is a teenager. Like, that's how old the internet is. And so no wonder it's a punk, right? Like, that's kind of what I think about. Um, and so uh, we, we have to take a longer view in a lot of these things, especially as, as the world keeps changing, and it keeps changing faster. Um, So with all of this innovation, there always comes a certain amount of disruption. And so I was thinking, I was reflecting this week about different kinds of innovation and disruption that we're kind of in the midst of right now. And so I wanted to focus on the auto industry and how the auto industry of today has very um, little overlap with what the auto industry of yesteryear looked like, right? So for instance, think about this, um, the rise of electric cars, of hybrids, but also completely electric cars. My neighbor across the street has a completely electric car. It's not a hybrid, there's no gas. I've seen him plug it in at night, right? And I'm excited about the day where I get to have my own electric car when they're maybe a little more affordable. I just love the idea of plugging my phone in at night to charge and plugging my car in too, right? Like, I don't know, just the nerd in me is like, that just sounds cool, I wanna do it. So we're having electric cars, which obviously is disruptive, as as nice as that might be for greenhouse emissions and what that means for how we travel. But think about it this way. What do you do with gas stations, right? The gas industry will change slash shrink. What do you do when it comes to long trips? Because a lot of these things can't hold, at least right now with the batteries we have, they can't hold the charge to get the mileage that a tank of gas could right? And so um, we might see, as I'm I'm sure you might have seen in some of the places around town, they have the parking spot with the the post out front, and so you can charge your car while you shop, right? How great is that? That ad writes itself, doesn't it? Charge while you shop. Um, Or there's also um, uh, like a a whole host of, of things that can go along with that. So oil, gas stations, Chargers, but that's not the only thing that's going on in the auto industry. Think about Uber. Think about Lyft, right? These ride-sharing, these ride-hailing services. With the tap of a few buttons on your phone, you can get a car to show up to your house and take you anywhere in town or even take you all the way to the airport, right? Um, so that's obviously disrupting the cab service, right? Cab companies. Cab companies. So obviously they're having to compete on a level and in a way that they haven't had to compete before. But it's also changing a lot of people how they, what their attitude is towards owning a car. Because if you live in a city where you have to pay an arm and a leg to park that car every time you're not using it, um, maybe you don't need that car or to pay for that insurance. Maybe it is just easier to, to shell out five bucks a pop every time you need to get an Uber. So it's changing how we think about car ownership as well. It's not just about sharing rides. It's not about just disrupting the cab companies. It's also disrupting what we think about what it means. Why do you need to own a car if you just need it to get from point A to point B? Um, I've heard one thinker say, the problem is with our cars is that we only use them about 10% of the time we own them. The other 90% of the time they're sitting in a driveway, a garage, or a parking lot. And so... With ride-sharing services, it starts to change that dynamic. One more step. Let's follow it all the way through. Driverless cars, right? Um, for some people, that is as scary as all get out, right? Like, that is, that's how the robots take over, right? When they, when they have us all in our cars and they're flying death traps. Um, again, I'm kind of excited. I love the idea of being in a commute and being able to read my book on my way to wherever it is I'm going. I just think that's cool. Um, so sign me up. But, obviously, that has its own disruptions as well. Um, so, we can think about, one, car ownership, and two, do you, does anybody need to own it, right? Can't you just, it almost can be like a bus. If we just had a bunch of cars on the road, and you hailed one with a new app, whatever the next Uber is, right, and it comes by and picks you up, drops you off, and then goes on to the next place, the next person that called it. It's not just cars, though. We're also talking about the trucking industry. We're talking about how most goods get from point A to point B in the United States. What happens when all those people, all those people that drive those semis, well, now you're replaced by a computer, right? And so now it disrupts not just me or a family or a car ownership and whether or not I have a car or two or not. Now we're talking about careers. We're talking about livelihoods and the disruptions that go along with that. Or also, will it ever be safe enough, right? Because that's the question on everybody's minds. Well, how many car deaths, how many accidents happen in the United States that will result in the loss of life? So, what if we could cut that in half with a driverless car? If everybody had a driverless car, is that still too much? Because that's still uncomfortable for a lot of people. That there could be a car accident with no one driving, even if it is twice as safe. Yeah, but I need a wheel, right? Everybody wants a wheel so they can do something. Because we all think we're above average. Well, if, everybody, if 80% of drivers think they're above average, at least 30% of them is wrong, right? Okay? So there's all of this to think about. And that's just one industry, right? That's just the one I picked on just because it was easy to think about. We've seen these things in the news. Um, you can think about currency when it comes to Bitcoin. You can think about the internet and apps and how they've changed. You can think about TV and how Netflix and Hulu. There's all kinds of disruptions that come along with each one of these innovations, and that's what I want us to think about spiritually today when it comes to Acts chapter 10. Because that's what's happening between Cornelius and Peter. Peter's a good Jew. Peter has been an observant Jew most of his life. He's studied under the Jewish rabbi that is Jesus. And now here he is bumping up against the Gentile world in the form of Cornelius. Cornelius. And so that's what Acts chapter 10 talks about. Now, we're only going to look at the last part of Acts chapter 10, but we're kind of coming into the last scene of this bigger drama that's been going on for the entire chapter. And, and Jeff did a really good job of kind of summing that up with the puppets, but I want us to revisit it a little bit more. Acts chapter 10 starts with the fact that Cornelius gets a vision from God who says, go and find Peter, summon Peter. So Cornelius does. Cornelius is a, is a God-fearer, which means he's a Gentile that believes in God and worships God as much as the Jews will allow him, essentially. He's got his own special place in the court. He can't be a full Jew, but he can be a God-fearer and an observer of the Jewish customs as much as they allow him. And so that's what he does. And so he goes, he sends for Peter. Now Peter, at the same time, he's getting visions, but he's getting like this weird kind of trippy vision of this blanket, of this sheet, this white like tablecloth coming down out of heaven with all these animals on it. And the, the voice, presumably God, tells him, Kill, rise, kill, and eat. Except they're all the things that good, observant Jews are not supposed to eat because they're all unclean. We all know that because of the Torah, because of the books of Moses. And, and Peter's kind of like, is this a trick question? I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. So he plays it safe. No, I'll never do that. I wouldn't do that. No unclean thing has ever passed my lips, and I'm not about to start now until God calls him out on it. And he says, don't call something unclean that I have made clean. And so I can just imagine the wheels start turning in Peter's head. And about that time, Cornelius' crew shows up, and they say, come with us, come see this Cornelius, come see this Gentile, come see this centurion, this part, this guy in the Italian regiment. And he's like, oh, oh, this isn't just about food anymore. And so now it's starting to dawn on Peter. He goes and he meets with him, which was a big no-no in and of itself. You don't accept table fellowship from a Gentile because that makes you unclean too. So it's not just what you eat, it's also who you eat with can make you unclean. And so Peter goes into the house of Cornelius and he has table fellowship with a Gentile, not just once, but for days. And this causes a hubbub, right? Did you see who so-and-so was eating with? We don't know anything about that today, right? No? No? All right. So anyway, he's there, and it causes such a hubbub that he has to eventually go back to Jerusalem. He has to go back to Jerusalem and justify what it is that he's doing and why that he's doing it, except this is what happens. Before he leaves, in the midst of all of this, he presents the gospel, as Peter always does, as he did on the day of Pentecost. And so he presents the gospel, and this is what happens after, while well, he's in the middle of presenting the gospel. <clears throat> If you look at verse 44, it says this. Now, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Like, really? Even these guys? I mean, that's essentially what they're thinking. And the reason it's kind of emphasized here, the circumcised believers, they were probably part of a certain group within Judaism that believed you had to do all the things a Jew had to do in order to be part of this movement. Paul eventually goes on to call them the Judaizers um, in some of his letters. And so they say, this group that thinks you have to be a good Jew before you can be a good Christian, they see the Holy Spirit pour out on these Gentiles before they even try to be a good Jew. And they're like... Huh, they don't know what to think about it. And so in verse 47, or 46, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So this is kind of like the the leading question from Peter. Surely no one's gonna stop me if I try to baptize them, looking at those circumcised believers, right? Like, right, I dare you, right, right? And so, of course, nobody says anything to Peter. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So we see here the Holy Spirit is poured out, and they speak in tongues. And the the word that's used here is the same word that we see. Earlier in Acts, when it comes to the Pentecost event, this isn't the speaking in tongues like you might think of or that some churches practice today. This is the speaking in tongues in which they are speaking in an earthly language that other people around them can understand, but they themselves have never studied or practiced. So there's a pouring out of the Spirit, there's a speaking in tongues, all in response to the gospel being preached. This is Pentecost, it's actually part three at this point. See, because it happened earlier on the day of Pentecost, when everybody was gathered together in Jerusalem, Peter was there for that. He was the one preaching. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the Samaritans as well. They were kind of the half-Jews. They were the half-breeds. They weren't quite as bad as Gentiles, but they certainly certainly weren't the pure bloods that the Jewish people were down in Israel. But the Samaritans got the Holy Spirit, which is kind of understandable. They used to be God's people. And so they had their own kind of Pentecost. That was part two. Peter was there for that as well. But now that it's coming to Gentiles, the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is the exact same stuff that happened in Israel, that happened in Jerusalem. There's the message preached, the Holy Spirit poured out, and is speaking in tongues. And so Peter recognizes it. He's been there the first two times it happened. And so by the third time, he's like, oh, well, I know where this has to go. Let's baptize these guys. This is what happened they got the Holy Spirit. There's no arguing as he looks in the eyes the circumcised believers. There's no arguing, right? Which eventually we know there's arguing, right? He has to go back to Jerusalem. He has to make the case to the council. But he, he recognizes that this is the, the Pentecost for Gentiles. And it's the only place in all of Acts that we see the Holy Spirit poured out before baptism. Which is an important note that it happens there before baptism for the Gentiles. So later on in the council in Jerusalem, Peter's getting raked over the coals for this. This is not how a good Jew is supposed to act. He wasn't supposed to stay there with the Gentiles. He wasn't supposed to share table fellowship with them. And why did he even go to preach to them in the first place? That wasn't something you do. This is before Paul was on his big thing. But he did it anyway. He, he listened to God, even though God was calling him in a new direction, even though God was innovating something new, even though that innovation caused a lot of disruption in the already established church, Peter knew what he had to do, and so he did it. He listened, and he was obedient. See, he goes on to describe it in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. This is how he says it. He says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, them meaning the Gentiles I just read about, By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith. Now, being raised up as a good Nazarene preacher, I hear that and I think sanctification. That's what that language is. Purified their hearts by faith. The moment they received the Holy Spirit which was at the same time that they they received the message that they were saved, that they responded to the gospel. So what we're seeing here is salvation and sanctification all happening at the same time. Boom, boom. For some of us, that might be a little more drawn out. You might be saved, and then later you're sanctified. But here it's all wrapped up in one thing, and it's wrapped up because of the Holy Spirit. It's all connected to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so that's a couple things I want to hit on here this morning that I think there's sometimes some confusion in our tradition about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to salvation and the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to sanctification. Now, salvation is when you are saved. It's when you first respond to God's grace. When you respond to the gospel message, you repent of your sins and you are saved. You put all of your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sanctification is a second work of God's grace. Sanctification is a second work of God's grace in which you give all that you have and all that you may ever have over to God. See, the first yes is when you are saved, when you are saying yes forevermore, no matter what comes up, when you're giving God all of your will, all of your future, not just your past. That's sanctification. That's when your heart is purified by faith, to use Peter's phrase. Now, here's the thing. In our tradition, uh, it's an older tradition. We've been around for over 100 years. We've used a lot of terms and a lot of phrases to talk about sanctification. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has been one of those. And if it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then here's the question. When does a believer get the Holy Spirit? When they're saved or when they're sanctified? And that's become an issue for some in our tradition. When does the Holy Spirit enter into the life of the believer? When they're saved or when they're sanctified? And I firmly stand in the camp that says, you receive the Holy Spirit when you are saved. It happens then. And you don't get just part of the Holy Spirit, because that's another way. Some say you're filled with the Holy Spirit when you're sanctified. So do you just kind of get like a half helping when you're saved? Like, that's what I want to ask sometimes, right? And I don't think we can talk about the Holy Spirit that way. Because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, not just some mysterious force, not just some, like, holy light-filled fog, like it seems like we talk about him sometime in church. It's a hymn. It's a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So I don't think you can get just half. You don't just get from the waist up when you're saved, right? And then the rest of them when you're sanctified. You get the Holy Spirit, period, when you are saved. And that's what allows you to be sanctified. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit when you're saved, then how in the world were you sanctified? Was it something you did? No. Second work of God's grace. It's not something you did. It's the Holy Spirit working in you convicting you, showing you new things, leading you to new places. It's the Holy Spirit innovating in you and your life. And you better believe there's going to be some disruption. We like to call that conviction. That's what that is. And so when the Holy Spirit works on you and gets you to this point of sanctification where you respond to God's grace, it's not about you getting more of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is about the Holy Spirit getting more of you. That's what it's about. And that's why we still talk about it. That's why it can be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not because you get more of the Holy Spirit, it's because you're fully baptized in it. You're not just playing around in the shallow end of the kiddie pool anymore. No, you are baptized. You have gone under, you have come up. You have died and become a new creation in Christ. That's how sanctification works, and that's why the Holy Spirit's important. The Holy Spirit is working in you from the moment of your salvation. And because we believe in prevenient grace... The Holy Spirit's actually working on you from before salvation. It's just not living in you. It's knocking at the door. It's trying to get in. That's what prevenient grace is. Salvation is when the Holy Spirit moves in, right? And if we're going to stick with a, a moving or a house or a living metaphor, it's sanctification is when he guts it all and does a remodel, right? I mean, that's, that's when it becomes, that's when the house is flipped, right? If you want to think about it that way. It's about the Holy Spirit getting more of you, not you getting somehow more of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand this, that it's about us responding to God's grace and being shaped by his Holy Spirit into Christ likeness. This is the journey of sanctification. And sometimes it happens all at once, like we see with the Gentiles, right? That's what we see here. Peter says their hearts were purified by faith, I believe they continued to grow because there's a certain maturity that only comes after years of walking in the faith, but their hearts were purified. Their intentions, their motives, they were purified. It just took a while for that to work out in their practice. But sometimes it happens all at once. Sometimes it takes a while. Um, And I think that's just because the Holy Spirit deals with us in different ways. The Holy Spirit knows what you need and knows that what you need is probably different than what I need, which is different from what she needs or she needs, the Holy Spirit takes the time that we need to move us to a place of entirely being sanctified for God's purposes. And that's how it works. So the question that, that I'm leaving with you this morning is, where is God calling you? What, what kind of new thing, what innovation is God pulling you towards? Maybe for some of us, the innovation is being saved. Maybe the innovation is saying the first yes, and the disruption is all the conviction and the repentance that comes with that. Maybe the innovation is is saying all of my yeses forever for the future. Um, it's giving all of me to the Holy Spirit now. And so your yes would be sanctification. That's the innovation and the disruption that comes with that and learning a new way of life. Or maybe you've been there. Maybe you, those things are both in the past for you. But I, I fully believe that the Holy Spirit still has new things to do in your life. And so maybe it's something about the the innovation is a new ministry. Maybe it's a new place or a new way of living that God has called you to. Maybe it's a a change in how you relate to your family. Whatever these innovations are, God can and does bring them about, and they still have disruptions that come with them. Just because it's something God wants you to do doesn't always mean it's going to be easy. It just means that God wants you to do it. Peter did it. Peter listened, and he caught a lot of flack for it when it came to the Jerusalem Council in the early church. But God called him to it so he knew he had to. The flip side of this is is sometimes there's disruptions before there's innovation. That's when life happens. That's when life throws you the curveball, whether it's the diagnosis, whether it's the broken relationship, whether it's the the pink slip on the job, whatever it is, where life throws you the disruption and you're like, well, where's the new good thing in all of this and you can't see it? I don't believe that God causes those things, but I do believe that God can redeem those things, that God can use disruptions and turn them into innovations. So even if you're thinking, well, where's the good news in this? What's the new thing in this? Sometimes the old things die, and it's only after the old things die that the new life can happen, that the resurrection can happen, that the new life, the innovation can be breathed into a situation. Problem is, we don't know that until we get there. And when you're living in the middle of that disruption, it can be hard, and it can be difficult, and you can be tempted to give up. And my word for you this morning is you got to stay the course. you got to trust the Holy Spirit who's working in you. And the fact that God is working through the Holy Spirit in you and can bring an innovation out of that disruption. So as we get ready to wrap up, I want to I wanna leave you with this one image that struck me this week in my reading and that I, I didn't know. I learned something new, so of course I want to share it. Um, it's about the, you, and you might have heard about it, it's the, the jack pine the jack pine is a certain kind of pine tree that has the cone. So the jack pine cone um, is, is ugly, let's be honest. It's like this like big like bean looking like scaly bean looking thing almost as big as your hand or a little bigger, right? And it looks kind of like a kidney bean. And it's not, it's definitely not that pretty pine cone that you want to decorate with like in fall and winter, all right? This is the one that you pass over to go get the one that looks pretty to put, you know, in the wreath in your house, all right? But the jack pine cone is interesting in the sense that that scale, it's all sealed up and the seeds are in the inside. And it opens up. It will only release the seeds after it's been through intense heat. It's after a forest fire or a brush fire that these pine cones open up and release their seeds. So it's only after a literal trial by fire that these pine cones will open up and release the seeds and then new life can start. See, the jack pine cone is a wonderful image from nature about the the very reality of resurrection life. It's only after it's been burned, only after it's been through the heat, only after it's been through the trial does it open up, and then new life can happen. And sometimes that's exactly how it works in the resurrection life. Sometimes, as Jesus said, we have to lose our life in order to find it. And sometimes it's only after something has died that we can experience true resurrection life in the here and now. Let us stand and close out with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now asking for you to shape us, to change us from the inside out, May we be aware, may we be cognizant of the fact that it is your Holy Spirit living in us. That it's your Holy Spirit that makes all of this possible from the beginning to the end, from salvation to sanctification and even beyond. And so may we partner with the Holy Spirit in that work. May we not resist, may we not kick against it, but instead may we embrace it. The innovation it brings, but also the disruption. And may we learn to work through it all with you trusting you and where you're guiding us and where you're leading us. May we say an always an eternal yes to the work of God in us. And so, Father, may we let you shape us and form us into Christ-likeness in order that we might be changed and that our hearts might be purified and that we might experience not just your salvation but your sanctification. May we give you, all of us, Always and forever, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Go in grace and peace.